Hey everybody, thank you for joining us here on the Fearless Paranoia podcast where we are seeking to dissect, disassemble, and make clear and understandable the confusing, opaque, and dense world of cybersecurity. Grinning at me here is my good friend, Ryan. He's a cybersecurity architect. I'm Brian, the cybersecurity attorney, and we are here together to break down the things that we do understand, things we don't understand. Okay, the things we do understand and the things that he does understand and I don't. Let's be perfectly honest about that in the cybersecurity world. Now, we've got a really interesting topic today. Oftentimes, we try to come up with one small thing that we want to break down, but some of the more fun episodes that we have are when we talk talk about when it all falls down. So a couple of weeks ago, there was some strange news. I think that's probably the best way to phrase it when it was in, initially came out, was that there was some trouble at the MGM Grand Casino and uh, MGM resorts in general. There were people having difficulty getting into their rooms. There were issues with people on the floor of the casino trying to get money out of ATMs to, you know, lose it to the casino. And there were even slot machines shutting down. And all we got from MGM was this vague statement about dealing with a cybersecurity incident. Now, to most people who follow cybersecurity closely or work in the industry, when you have a the combination of the term cybersecurity incident, which is in the industry a catch-all term for for any kind of cyber attack, whether it is successful or not, with people reporting that slot machines have gone down and hotel key cards don't work, there's no more doubt about whether it was a successful cyber attack or not. That's what we know from the outside as we got that news. Ryan has actually done us all a favor, and I think probably more for his own personal enjoyment than anything else, read up on this. Ryan, what happened at MGM? What happened at MGM is something that we're going to start to see a lot more regularly if the basic tenets of cybersecurity aren't really followed. And that's that MGM fell to a widespread cyber attack by a pretty ruthless actor that took very little effort to overtake most of their systems once they were able to gain uh, initial administrative access. And it, from everything I'm reading, that was it was relatively trivial the way they went about it. A variety of different policy failures, a variety of different systems failures uh, led to a very very, very quick, broad compromise of numerous organizations that were all tied together. I think uh, one piece of it too was they compromised some of the Okta administration. I think Okta said there was a few, maybe like up to three other associations that were also Okta customers that were related to it that were also compromised through the similar attack. But this all started with really basic things again, which is part of why MGM now, just like a lot of other companies, is kind of sitting here with their pants down at the moment because it was credential stuffing, which means bad password hygiene. It was social engineering. It was contacting a help desk and resetting an administrative password without proper identification. It was lack of system segregation and probably huge overprivilege inside the company that made it easy to find a targetable, highly privileged account and run amok with, again, little to no effort. There's even been a big claim by the attackers <laughs> themselves about the time frame in which it took them to do that, which there's a little bit of extra information left out of the mix, but they said it was about 10 minutes from intrusion to full compromise. And I don't doubt that once they got past discovery and got into the actual stages of being operational, that that's probably all the longer it really took. So before you talk any further on that, so basically one of the things Ryan's talking about there is that there's a ransomware group, Black Hat Ransomware Group, has essentially claimed responsibility for it. Now, the veracity of that claim can't be and probably won't be verified absent a whole lot of forensic information being turned over by the Black Hat Ransomware Group to prove that they did it, which of course they're never going to do. But it reminds me in somewhat of the Uber hack that we talked about last year 
where the hacker essentially published the entire history of the hack, which is the only reason we actually have a full idea of what happened. And I do want to talk about this a little bit later. There's a real gap, I feel like, between what's actually going on in the cybersecurity world and what we actually hear about what happens and what went wrong. And I feel like it's contributing to the lack of cybersecurity follow-through, the lack of truly addressing the real cybersecurity needs, because we only find out how badly these companies screwed up if information that doesn't usually get published somehow gets out. Am I right there? Or is that just something that's hitting me with some of this news? No, I think you're right. But I mean, I, th I think it comes back to like human nature and business nature, right? There's not going to be many businesses, especially large private businesses, or even, maybe even more so large public businesses that want to share all the details when you get put in a position like this. I mean, who wants to be the one that gets caught getting beat up on the playground and then find out that you were the instigator in some fashion or you were at fault in some way. And in a lot of cases, you know, in, in these instances, yes, you need to feel bad for these businesses. And legitimately, I do, especially for a lot of their operational employees, because these are my cybersecurity brothers and sisters out here that are fighting these problems and dealing with the cleanup, especially after the fact, which means lots of long hours, lots of long days and lots of time sitting in the trenches. But it comes down again, a lot of times, like in this case here, there was bad policies in place. They weren't adhered to. There was a lot of bad systemic issues that allowed this to happen. And if this was a really sophisticated attack, it's a lot easier to feel really, really bad for MGM at that point, because then they just got taken advantage of by something that was probably less avoidable. In this instance, this was a whole series of extremely avoidable and well-known at this stage in the game events that probably could have otherwise with some training and some extra spend in the cybersecurity space probably could have been avoided altogether. Okay, so let's walk through that then, because you mentioned a few of those things that they used before, including credential stuffing, uh, including social engineering. Let's walk through, and I'm not even going to say what we know, what we believe, or at least what was reported based on the claims made by the Black Hat ransomware group as at least, and what we know about the hack that's been released by MGM and also the cybersecurity analysts who've looked at it. What's the first step in this attack? Yeah. And let's keep in mind a real quick disclaimer at the front. The news has even changed again as of today. So like this is still uh, kind of an unfolding case. So even at the point when we put this out, there might be some of this stuff that's going to change from time to time. And that's just the nature of incident response. It takes a very short time for these events to occur. It takes a very long time to dig through the forensic evidence to really put the story together. If you don't have an actor that's going to be bold enough to just kind of come out and say, this is exactly how I did it. And here's all my evidence. I mean, it's very rare that you get that. So you really have to take the time to dig and put these pieces together. The pieces that we know that are being reported right now, there was some system access that was attained using credential stuffing. And just remind us all, what's credential stuffing? Yep. Credential stuffing is so you get in different breaches. And so, which means these credentials likely came from outside of MGM, but you know, credentials fly all over the internet and are stored in many different sources nowadays. And if any one of those sources gets disrupted or gets breached in some manner and credentials are pilfered away from them, if somebody's reusing those credentials elsewhere for other similar accounts, that's how credential stuffing really starts is it takes people's tendency to reuse passwords for ease of use and, you know, 
reduce complexity and use them on multiple accounts across multiple systems or multiple assets so that it's easier for the user, the human, to log into these systems. The problem there is it makes it really easy for a bad actor to get a hold of one credential set from, say, like a LinkedIn breach and use it to log into like a Gmail account because you've used the password the same way. Plus, you used your Gmail to log in or sign up your LinkedIn account. So now that uh, that username password combo is already tied together. Now it's just a matter of taking that username password combo and all the other ones from all these other breaches and then just running brute force attacks against different systems that don't require multi-factor to see if you can find a username password combo that gets a hit that actually successfully logs in somewhere. And they can write software and programs that will go through and just repeatedly try all these different username password combos on different areas and different systems that allow logins. So again, different banks, different forums, different whatever, anything you can log into. But credential stuffing is then taking these huge lists of known breached credentials and just using those. And again, just stuffing them into place, waiting to see for a hit to pop up. The big thing about credential stuffing is you're taking a list of already known credentials and trying to just get quick hits. It's a very low hanging fruit style attack. They probably didn't have MGM initially targeted. Somebody probably found out through a credential stuffing attack, blindly shooting around that there's an MGM credential. They probably tried to log into an MGM system and got a hit somewhere. And then that probably started the discovery path of, oh, hey, this is a legitimate potential path we could look at. And then you start poking around and starting to see what you can find. You talked about that when we were getting ready for this. We were laughing a little bit about the notion of the 10 minute hack in that it takes, yeah, it takes 10 minutes, you know, once you've got all the discovery figured out. Talk to us about what you mean there. I understand the credential stuffing is probably one of the first active components of this discovery process. Of course, obtaining the credentials in the first place would be another part of it. But what does it at least appear from what we know now came after the credential stuffing identified at least one account that they could access? Yep. So what typically happens at that point here is, so now you've got access to one account, which means you've got some legitimacy inside the network, which is going to get you access to some level of system resources. First thing usually you do there is you poke around and see what level of access do I have? Am I limited to a very you know limited user level? If so, can I get into any of their stuff? Can I find any shared resources? Maybe I can find an Excel that somebody on our team put somewhere that's got some shared admin passwords in it, something real basic. You start poking around to look for just kind of easy pivot persistence or just data, anything attractive that you can get to really quick right away. If you've got an administrative level account, you're already in the gold mine, and then you just start to try and work towards pivoting into bigger spots and creating your persistence, making sure you've got a strong foothold. If you're at a limited user account, which is probably the case of what happened here, you start to look around for easy things. Like let's say I get onto a user workstation at a random company. Well, if I can get administrative level access to that through some ransomware or getting the user to give it to me, or God forbid, you got the user actually running as admin that you can go and pull off all the credentials that are sitting cached on that system, which if they've had a help desk person log into their system within the last few days, you might have an administrative level password that's cached in that system somewhere. You get in there, you pull something like that. Or in this case, it sounds like what they actually did was went through and contacted the help desk through MGM and was able to get access to some higher level accounts, either through MFA resets, password resets, etc., and getting the help desk to assist basically walking them right in with a set of keys. From there, they were able to get access to the Okta infrastructure. Remind me, when you say Okta infrastructure, we know specifically what they had in place. Yeah, so Okta is an identity provider, so they're used to kind of help 
synchronize company identities or organization identities and create seamless entry points with identity and secure identity access to those different systems from a single place. So Okta is, some people simplify it and they call them like an SSO provider or a single sign-on provider where you tie in all your applications so that you can have that there. Most businesses, they use Okta as a full uh, identity provider, which means let's say you've got like an on-prem system where you're running Active Directory still, plus you're in Office 365, plus you have a ton of other connected applications. You'll bring in Okta because Okta can like single click with their marketplace a whole bunch of these different apps into single sign-on for you with very little effort. Because of that, Okta also controls all your identity between your core control system like Active Directory, all your cloud systems, and access to all the privileges that are delegated by those systems. So if you can get administrative access over an infrastructure like Okta's systems, you essentially have keys to the kingdom at that point because now you have the ability to remove, delegate, and change access across the entire organization at the identity level. And possibly multiple organizations too because this, you know, depending on where in an organization you've got it. And- GM Entertainment has how many different components to it. You want some members of your team to have access to information and processes that are owned by, if you were able to get access to a system that connected multiple major entities to a larger umbrella entity, that's, I mean, keys to the kingdom plus the kingdom next door plus the kingdom four houses down. I mean, that's... And that's why this right here, this is a little kind of tangential to our conversation, but this is why managed service providers need to be extremely careful in this type of attack because right here, a lot of times a managed service provider is running anywhere from 20 to 500 clients networks. And that means that there's probably a consolidated password resource somewhere inside that managed service provider for all of those clients, which means now if an MSP gets hit, if they get their credentials pilfered from whatever their repository is, you could have hundreds of businesses immediately at extreme danger because the MSP probably likely has very highly administrative level access, if not the only highly administrative level access for some of those client companies. And that's a scary spot to be in. If you're a small or medium business, you're putting a lot of your faith in somebody else. So it's an interesting thing that's starting to occur that people need to really be aware of and look out and monitor and be ready to protect against. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. For more information on keeping yourself, your family, and your company protected against cyber threats, check out the Resilient Cybersecurity and Data Privacy blog. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like and subscribe using any of your favorite podcast platforms. Also, please share this podcast with anyone you think would find it helpful or useful. We rely on listeners like you to help get the word out about this show, and we appreciate the support. Now, time for some more cybersecurity. Now, this 10-minute claim, this is the social engineering call they're talking about, right? Correct. So whether they had the information beforehand or they got the information through their credential stuffing attack, they somehow got the contact information for the help desk. And I can't help but thinking there's a line in the movie, Get Shorty. How'd you get in here? I pretended I was you. I acted real stupid and they believed me. I mean, if that's not what this exact thing was boiled down to, you know, one very well-written statement, I don't know a better way to describe it. Yeah. The story right now in the news is it took somebody from this ransomware gang 10 minutes with a help desk employee, basically by just finding one of their employees on LinkedIn, looking up the profile, becoming familiar enough with the employee and making the call to the help desk on their behalf. That's a scary thing for the help desk to have enough power to be able to give that level of access out without some sort of approval process is scary. How about an organization that size that has a help desk employee who can be specifically identified, specifically researched, and then specifically contacted? Yep. And again, no validation.
position, right? They just said, oh, you seem to know a lot about this employee. This must be you because you seem to know a lot of stuff about you. So I'm just going to let it happen. Not even like a basic check, I would assume. Like, give me your employee ID number or something that like won't be public on LinkedIn. I feel like that there's an unfortunate caricature sometimes of the criminal mindset. And I feel like sometimes when I talk to people about this and I remind people that criminals are by and large lazy. They are naturally lazy. They are doing something that is getting them rewards for doing as little work as possible and therefore making yourself just slightly more difficult to be victimized than the person next to you dramatically reduces your chances of being a victim. However, that doesn't mean that they're not still skilled at what they do. If anything, it could indicate that they're more skilled at what they do because think about it for a minute. You're tailoring your level of effort specifically to your level of reward. That's exactly what you just kind of identified for them is that if there's no immediate reward sitting in front of them, they're going to take the path of least resistance. They're going to take the lowest hanging fruit and the broadest swipe at whatever they can until they find something. But Mm -hmm. if you drop in their lap initial compromise access to a gold mine, most of those well skilled attackers are not going to just go in there blindly making a ton of noise trying to just rape and pillage really quick and grab a little piece of something. This is where all of a sudden the game changes because now the level of reward goes up. The level of risk is probably there also, but you turn around and you're willing to put in a lot more effort because if you take the time to make sure you get a strong foothold so that when you do start pilfering, if they catch you and boot you, you just go back in and start grabbing some more again. And so the game changes with the level of effort versus that level of reward. So to me, it almost indicates, yeah, they are lazy until there's a really good reason not to be. And then they put full force behind everything that they're doing. So to me, it seems like a viable approach for the type of work. I have a hard time calling it work, but for the kind of work that they're in. I want to talk about in a minute here what we can take from these things. But I also want to mention, I said earlier, there was another story that was in the news at the same time. Another casino, Caesars, was the victim of a ransomware group, or it's believed or expected. Now, we only know about this because they made a public filing. I believe it was an SEC filing indicating that they had been the victim of a cyber attack and that information had been taken from them. Their hotel loyalty program, their members, social security numbers, and driver's license numbers, along with a significant amount of other personally identifiable information were taken. And that's what's led a lot of experts to believe, okay, you were hit by ransomware. There's been later reporting saying they even paid something like half of a $30 million demand in order to, I guess, convince the hackers not to publish any of this information. There are a lot of lessons that we can take away from this. But, and I told you about this earlier, The thing that just feels like an ice pick in the back of my brain is why the hell does a rewards program store information about their loyalty members, social security numbers, and driver's license numbers? There's a principle in privacy called data minimization. It is incredibly important. If you have to comply with the GDPR, you should really know what this is. CCPA makes a deal out of it too. Some of the other privacy laws in the US are starting to, but they really need to do a better job. But data minimization says you collect what you need. That's it. This is loyalty program members. Unless your loyalty program takes into account the amount of money won or lost in the casino and needs to. Unless they have reporting requirements. That's really like what you're getting well, to, right? If they but have even, to report. even separate from that, even separate from the reporting requirements, because they do have to report on an individual basis. But if you're going to be keeping that sensitive of information, you also need to segregate the data. You keep it separate wherever you possibly can. You don't take all of the data that you've collected about one individual from multiple different systems, programs, and experiences and put them all together in one spot. Otherwise, you create the simple and permanent gold mine 
target for hackers. So if you do have to report it, why are you keeping that information, which by the way, should be kept at a different level with a higher level of security. We've talked about this before. Why in God's name are you keeping that information in an accessible file that would also, by the way, make it much more connectable to other personal information of that individual. I also guarantee you Caesars is the only company in the history of time that's ever done that. That's just, oh yeah, yeah. That's for all the hackers out there. Just so you know, they're the only one that's ever done that. So don't try that again. <laughs> that's, uh, that's not going to work. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. We're here to help make the complex language of cybersecurity understandable. So if there are topics or issues that you'd like Ryan and I to break down in an episode, send us an email at info at fearlessparanoia.com or reach out to us on Facebook or LinkedIn. For more information about today's episode, be sure to check out fearlessparanoia.com where you'll find a full transcript as well as links to helpful resources and any research and reports discussed during the episode. While you're there, check out our other posts and podcasts as well as additional helpful resources for learning about cybersecurity. Now back to the show. But that's of the lessons that we can learn from these things. It's amazing to me because I see as a privacy professional, I see this complete disregard for the concepts and principles that should be underpinning everything that's being done in cybersecurity. And you have talked about this at length in previous episodes, and I will make sure to list those previous episodes because there are, it's too many to just talk about right now in the post for this. But of the things that we can do and the things that need to be separated and the things that need to have higher and different levels of authority and authorization and ability to access, the basic lessons that we don't learn. That's my little tangent from the Caesars brief. Of these two stories that came out in the past couple of weeks, what are the biggest lessons you want companies to learn? Oh, God. Uh, are we ready to start a whole other episode? What's, uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So first one, least privilege. If your people don't need it, if you don't need it, don't have it. That right there is not there because we want to make life complicated for users. It is there because we want to make stuff difficult to access. That's the whole point of least privilege is it really just least privilege is access to data, access to systems, access even to your workstation. No standard user out there needs admin access to your workstation. Network segregation, huge. When you run large networks that are interconnected with lots of systems, like a simple basic thing, you don't tie together your core identity system with, with your slot machine system, with your fire suppression system, with your door card system. You don't connect all those systems together. There's no reason for those to be connected together. If they don't have a legitimate need to be talking to each other, they should not be able to talk to each other. Those need to be fully, fully segregated off from one another to make it challenging for an actor or a piece of software to just traverse those network boundaries and just have full control over everything. If you make those things, even if they get the credentials, if you segregate out the access to those, it's going to make it so that they have to go through multiple extra steps to be able to compromise all those different segments of the network. And that right there is the amount of time that it probably will take for defenders to be able to interject into the middle of that piece. And that extends the 10 minute gap by a lot. So that's a really important one as well. Shutting down your public attack surface. If you've got stuff that's open to the public and it doesn't need to be, close it down. Lock it down behind your VPN, lock it down behind zero trust network architecture. Do something to make sure that all that stuff isn't just sitting out there because if it's out there, somebody's scanning it, somebody's going to be poking at it, and somebody's eventually going to find a way in through it. Password hygiene. People need to understand that passwords need to be complex as long as we're going to keep using passwords. And even better still, move away from passwords 
passwords wherever you get the opportunity. We're going to do an episode at some point later on about password hygiene and password complexity and the eventual move to passwordless systems. The sooner people can start moving in that direction, the better off life is going to be. Looking at app-based connections, looking at TOTP, looking at stuff like uh, hardware tokens like a YubiKey. If you can get into like the YubiKey life and stuff, that's going to be a much better place for the kind of foreseeable future for keeping things secure. Good practice and policies, especially with your really privileged users, your help desk people. These people have got unprecedented access to your system. They need to be following policies to the T and policies need to be strong and anything that seems to be weird and out of line needs to be reported and paused before it's ever moved forward. That's basic advice for almost every business nowadays that has highly privileged users. So, I mean, those are some of the real basic ones. Oh, and cybersecurity training. Um, I can't stop before tooting that horn. Make sure people understand the impacts of these things. There are some people that still think that phishing is nothing more than the Nigerian prince emails trying to get you to send $1,200 to get $5 million in return. These things are coming nowadays from systems that your company uses with links that are going off-site instead of back to that system, but the emails look exactly like those systems. One of the best things I've done for catching people with phishing tests in the past is craft an item that looks like a concur, a rejection, or an approval request for some sort of an expense and just put a link in there for somebody to click approve. There's a lot of managers that will blindly approve all the stuff that comes into them. They click that approve link, you install a piece of malware, game over. So just those real basic things. We clean up those real basic core level procedural and systemic issues and the attacker's job becomes immensely harder. One other thing I wanted to ask you about real quick. This is something I've been wondering about for a long time. Part of this involves getting information about a help desk employee off of LinkedIn. Do we need to actually stop thinking about it as a public network in order to stop stuff like this from happening? What do you think? No, what we need to do is we need to stop verifying people by stuff that's available to be verified off of LinkedIn. That's the key. If you can go to LinkedIn and scrape enough information to verify somebody's identity, then your verification system sucks. You need to re-identify and rebuild your verification system to be internal only information in some factor, whether that's you create employee pins that you give out to the employee and that's the way they reset. And if they can't do that, then they have to do it physically at an office or through some other approved means, you know, video chat with numerous people calling from a pre-identified approved phone number or something like there has to be some sort of other check in place other than just public information. Mm -hmm. It's not a good system. I was pretty shocked to hear that a help desk was actually willing to provide critical information to someone who only shared information that was publicly available without having to share anything that was not. That is amazing to me. A lot of these social engineers are getting really crafty and they prey not just based on the information, but they prey on human nature too. So like people that are in help desk roles are usually much more timid. They're at the beginning of their IT careers and they don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to get fired. They still want to keep making a name for themselves in the industry. And that makes them easy to exploit, especially if you push really hard. And a lot of these crafty social engineers out there now are pushing really hard. Let's say you're a level one help desk guy. You've got keys to reset people's passwords, even admins, and you've been working at the job for three weeks. And all of a sudden you get a call from somebody that can validate themselves and read off all the information of the CFO. And they're like, you need to reset my damn password right now. What are you going to do? You're going to say no to an exec that could very well go to your boss and get you fired. You're three weeks on the job. You're trying to make an name for yourself. If you've been properly trained, yes, you are going yeah. to say no. Well, and that's just it, right? In a yeah. perfect world. Yes, you should. You're absolutely right. But the majority of those people are very susceptible to making those kind of mistakes and those kind of poor judgment calls just because of the nature of their lack of yeah. experience. And I don't mean this negatively, but lack of maturity in the field. Well, and also 
also, let's be perfectly honest here. Sometimes the lack of maturity in uh, senior management, because we oh, all yes. know, we all know C-suite people who have, despite years of training, that they can't treat themselves differently than everybody else who will still do exactly what you described, even if they're not a malicious actor. There are people who will berate lower line employees into doing something that they're not supposed to do. And that's where I draw the line. Cybersecurity does start by setting good examples. And I try to do my best to set that example too. I try to try to maintain least privilege where I can. And uh, and especially those places where I'm able to, like I don't run with a laptop that runs with local admin on it. So technically, if I needed to install things, I'd need to contact my help desk. And I'm a high level security official, right? I should just have admin. But anybody that can say they should just have it because XYZ reason, that's part of the problem. Mm -hmm. Realistically, the fewer users you have that have that level of access, the harder it's going to be to compromise you because it's going to be a much smaller attack surface. And that right there could be the one thing that saves you from being the next MGM, the next Caesars, the next Uber, the next LastPass, the next whoever. Yeah, we need to start working on making inconvenience more popular. Yeah, I think if we do that and just making sure that understand that it's okay to not have access to everything, the whole concept of like FOMO and all these other things have kind of led into this, like I need to be part of everything and everybody kind of has that mentality. And like, that's not the way to be secure to have everybody have access everything. It works great for collaboration, but it works really poorly once a bad actor gets inside. All right, y'all. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Fearless Paranoia. Tune in next week. We have a pretty interesting episode. We're going to talk about ransomware and the power of generative AI and how that's going to make our lives all a little bit more miserable as we move forward. We also have some great episodes coming up on some of the topics Ryan discussed earlier, and we're really looking forward to our 2024 predictions episode that we're going to have coming out here in, in probably about a month or so. I want to thank you for joining us. If you found this episode uh, useful, interesting, or helpful in any way, please share it with anyone who you believe might find it similarly useful, interesting, or helpful. You can you can also subscribe to this podcast on any of your favorite podcasting apps, platforms, systems, whatever. Until next time, I'm Brian. And I'm Ryan. And we'll see you.